McNulty stunning for Emilio to get up above Cargill and find Bennett. It's into the box. McNulty cut back for Roberts. It's Gary Roberts no, from Bosby. are leading in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Mark McNulty, but a good chance by Doyle for McNulty on the edge. Mark McNulty oh, short yes. for Bosby. Smashes it past McCormack. One by Doyle. Finished by the returning Mark McNulty. First left blood for Bosby. They're in dreamland early here at Bratton. There's a through ball to Jamal Lowe. Jamal Lowe's onside. The flag stayed down. Jamal Lowe. Nonchalant. Fantastic. Brilliant. Pompey will be promoted at this rate. That is it. Pompey are champions. They won League Two in the most dramatic of circumstances. The PO4 podcast with Hugh Bunce. Proud to be Pompey. Hi Pompey fans, and what's your forecast episode 164? Well, it's four points in the last two games. There's still some question marks about the performances. Do the podcast today is Andy Mitchmore. How are you, Andy? Hello, buddy. Yeah, good. Thank you. Living the absolute dream. A couple of wonderful games to watch in the last what, five days or so. Uh, no defeats this week. What's that Simpsons gif? It's like days since last disaster or days since last accident, zero and the number's falling off. So we're at least five days since the last disaster. So all the positivity, obviously. Well, in that sense, Anne, it's going to be a lovely positive podcast. And talking about positivity and a ray of sunshine in my life, Freddie Webb, how are you? Oh, not so bad, Hugh. Yeah, it was nice to be back at Fratton Park on Tuesday. That was the first like proper league home game I've been to in about a month due to work and other reasons. Shame that performance wasn't exactly what it was that translated into three points, but we got one point at least, but there's a lot to go into with that game. And there's plenty going on in the Pompey world, which has divided a load of people. So we're going to go through all of that. That's it. We can go into the Michael Eisner curse as well. Down Fratton Park and performance levels drop. What are we saying about that? Just... Sol's law, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we've got a lot to get into. So let's, let's crack straight into the content this week and let's go for it. So first of all, we're going to review the game against Forest Green. Following from that, we're going to review the emphatic draw at home to Oxford. And then we put a question out to you guys and we said, Pompey have been struggling in the centre of the field, especially against Oxford and, and Charlton. What does Danny Cowley need to do to fix that position? Finally, we're going to preview the game at home on this Saturday against the Shrews. Right, let's go for it. Forest Green Rovers. It looks like the Poppy fans travelled nicely in, in, you know, in numbers there. It was hard to get a ticket. Some people said it was you know, one of the worst away days they've been to. A football stadium stuck inside a village. Couldn't have guessed that one, but, you know, there we go. So some big changes in the centre midfield for the lineup in this game, obviously. Jay Mingy starts. Good. We've been asking for that last week. Ryan Turnercliffe started as well. So it's quite an inexperienced pair in the centre of midfield. But in this game, the bit of space for Jay Mingy, it sort of worked, did it, Freddie Webb? Yeah, he had a he was probably the man I matched in that game. Um his birthday as well. Same with Danny Cowley. I found that rather amusing. But yeah, whenever he got Whenever he got the ball in tight spaces, he was able to drive forwards incredibly well. And with that, it just gave more space for the um, the wingers and forwards, created a lot of chances as well, which was pretty decent. He was fouled several times. 
Tunnicliffe had an okay game. He stayed in the midfield behind him. So in this game, at least, the pair worked reasonably well. Bishop had a great effort in the first half, which Luke McGee tipped onto the bar. Curtis cut inside, played a low cross to him. And then the goal, excellent, excellent cross by Owen Dale, straight into Richard Braggett's head, climbed above the defender. And it was 1-0. It was um, a reason, good, reasonable way to start the game. Forest Green didn't offer a lot in the first quarter of an hour or so before the goal. And even with all the changes, the false changes due to injuries, uh, the Blues look reasonable, albeit against the poor side. Yeah, so he touched on the goal. It was quite interesting to see Owen Dale taking the corner and he, he banged it into the box, didn't he? He sort of looped in the header and, and Sean Ragger gets his head on the ball. Andy, how good is it to see Sean Ragger back on the score sheet? Yeah, very good to see him back scoring, obviously. Um, one of the things that has been a real positive over the last couple of seasons has been the centre-backs contributing on the score sheet. And obviously it just hasn't really happened for Raggett this season. But yeah, it's a really good ball in from, from Owen Dale. And I'm more than okay with seeing him, seeing him on corners in the future. And as Freddie says, it's isn't it like 12% of corners lead to goals or something? I think it's something along those lines. Just trying to speak your language here, Fred. But you're shrugging, so I might have made it up. Don't fact check me. Uh, but... Yeah, it was. It looks like a very simple goal when you watch it back. Eh, just a nice ball into the middle. All it takes is one centre back to outmuscle his marker. I mean, I don't think Raggett even jumps off the the ground. He heads it at pretty much head or neck height. Just uses his strength to get, you know, the better of his marker and head it in against, as Freddie said, a pretty poor Forest Green team. And I'd be extremely worried if I was a fan of of them for for many reasons actually, but. In this instance, mostly because they were they were poor, weren't they? At, at home, I wouldn't fancy them to be staying up at the end of the season. If I was a betting man, I would be putting money on them to go down, even though the odds are probably pretty atrocious on that at this point. We spoke about it last week, didn't we? Whether he would mix it up and sort of change the strike partnership, give Bishop and, and Piggott a go, and he did in the first half. It didn't seem to work from my perspective too well, did it? And I don't know if that's because they're both sort of making similar runs. I was kind of hoping that Piggott might actually drop off a little bit into the sort of the 10 and sort of collect the ball a bit. You know, not quite, not that deep, but just come and collect the ball a bit more and let Colby go on further. And we've seen that in other games, haven't we, where where Piggott starts, Bishop's been able to push on a little bit into that sort of pure number nine role. But Freddie, why do you think it didn't quite work out in the first half between Bishop and Piggott? I think it's because both strikers are trying to effectively do the same thing. I mean, really, both of them were pretty much playing as if they were going to latch onto the crosses rather than dropping deeper inside to try and collect the ball, help out the midfield a little bit. And yeah, it just it just didn't particularly work. They were looking. They're also both looking through the same runs. I remember. I remember Piggott collecting the ball slightly ahead of the penalty area. Then, it, then the ball rolls to Curtis, and then he shoots it wide. That was pretty much the only build-up he had. Yeah, it was just odd that so the pair didn't work. I think it's weird because in previous games, they worked a bit better than that. So it might have just been a poor game from those two. It might just be because Piggott being on the bench all the time, it was his first start in a while. So it was a bit off the pace. That probably doesn't help either. But no, it didn't work. And then the quality of chances just mooted and dropped off after a positive 17 minutes. Um, yeah, there was, it just wasn't there wasn't a brilliant amount of creativity for large spells of the game, which Danny Cowley would be disappointed with. 
it was good to see Jay Mingy collecting the ball and sort of driving it forward. It looked a bit like he did in Charlton. He sort of got the ball in that situation and started driving the ball. It was really the only outlet from from the sort of defence back into the top, top of midfield. And the two strikers looked very isolated up front. If you roll into the second half quickly, Danny Cowley didn't give it very long, did he, until he changed it up and put Dane Scarlett on at 53 minutes. But without criticising the other two strikers and how they played, Andy, do you think Dane Scarlett made a big difference when he came on at 53 minutes? Yeah, I think he had one particularly good chance that um, I'd have backed him to finish. But honestly, I in terms of the rotation of the strikers there, I do think you just have to take into account the number of games we have in a short space of time. So it makes sense whoever started that game to have rotation with a decent chunk of the second half to go because I do feel as if we were pretty in control of that game. So I think that Cowley could realistically afford to at least be considering the freshness of the players for the Oxford game. So yeah, I thought Scarlett came on and did a perfectly good job. But I think, yeah, whether I think bringing Scarlett on would have happened at that point almost no matter what the performance of the other players had been, as long as we were a goal to the good. Uh, I think this performance is it's a little bit different to the Oxford game where I thought we were totally blunt, as we'll talk about in a moment. But I think in this game, if one of those other really good chances goes in, like say Bishops in the second half, if one of them goes in and we get a 2-0 win away from home where we've created most of the good opportunities, I think you say it's a pretty decent day at the office. And I just think there's a bit less excitement about it about it because there was only that one goal margin. Um, I'm perfectly content with that. You get three points at a team where, yeah, you should be picking up three points, but you've still got to go and do it. And uh, yeah, I think the, the rotating of the strikers and bringing Scarlett on at the start of the second half certainly contributed to that. Let's talk about one of the positives in this game. I feel that this switch to Ogilvy back to left back, Swanson to right back. In this game, it quite evidently worked. We got the pitch better, I thought. Ogilvy played in quite an advanced position. If you look at the heat maps, he actually tracked forward a lot more on the left-hand side. Got some crosses into the box. I think our crossing percentage off the top of my head was still pretty bad, but it was good to see Swanson get forward a bit as well. He provided two of those crosses into the box. You can see he got forward a little bit on that hand side. But more importantly, I think for him starting this game was that Danny Cowley could rely on him sort of defensively as well. And he made a couple of good challenges in this game, didn't he, Fred? Yeah, Swanson didn't look out of place at all, both at both the back and going forward, which was really relishing to see because maybe... <laughs> We had so we had issues at the right back spot for ages with effectively Danny Cowley not trusting Swanson, but thankfully kept with him after the second half performance against Charlton. Played reasonably well here. If you and this is the sort of game that you should have played Swanson in in the first place. If you're not going to play him against a side that are in the relegation zone and battling to save the division, when when are you going to play him as a deaf player? Crossing percentage was pretty poor throughout this game, twenty two percent, which is below a good value. And yeah, I think that contributed a lot. Why? There was also the trend, which we'll talk about a lot more in the Oxford game, of wingers simply cutting inside and shooting from 20 yards, which doesn't create many high-quality clear-cut chances. And it's also sometimes, if you do it very often, quite easy to defend against if a team sits back in a low block, fills the penalty area as well. So yeah, I think there was a lot of that. Um one thing we didn't mention about Scarlett when he came on is he 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 gave Bishop a great chance when he pressed the centre half, managed to win the ball. The full ball the ball falls to Bishop one on one with the keeper, 
McGee does a pretty good save and it was a 0.36 expected goal chance for Bishop there. So yeah, I think it, I feel like it could have been more purely down to the quality of chances, just a few of them. There are a couple of high ones, but the rest of them were effectively hot shots from outside the penalty area, which is fairly frustrating, to be honest. I think you've got to give credit to Luke McGee as well. He had a really good game for Forest Green and on a different day, I think that could easily be a two-goal or a three-goal winning margin for Pompey. Um, he made a couple of excellent saves, didn't he? One in the first half and was it two in the first half, one in the second or one in each half? Can't remember. But made a couple of really, really excellent saves to keep to keep the score close. So yeah, it's nice to give credit where it's due occasionally to an ex-Pompey player. We normally just slag them off. So nice to give a bit of praise, which we can happily do magnanimously having taken three points. It's the best of both worlds. Exactly. Should we have kept Luke McGee? Is that what you were saying there, Andy? Sorry about it. Should we kept Luke McGee? Yeah, should we have kept him? Is that what you were trying to oh, say? Oh, kept him. I thought you were talking about Ketterman. No, um, I don't <laughs> think we should have kept him. No. Fair enough. Ketterman and Luke McGee do go together beautifully, I've heard. All right. Is there much? Is there that's much? Like, to- that's totally libelous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Luke McGee is going to reach out to me on Twitter and point that out. I'm pretty sure if the owners of Forest Green don't like anyone eating meat, they're not going to be that keen on the keeper doing ketamine at halftime, are they? So that's an outrageous accusation. I, don't, I, don't, I generally don't think they like anything, to be honest with you. A couple of little other tidbits from the game. Forest Green struggled to keep the ball in possession and had a very low offensive duels rating of 34.48% of successful offensive duels. So they knocked off the ball a fair bit. I think Pompey did a reasonable job at that. The pressing stats were pretty much the same with both sides having a reasonable high press but not very high and Forest Green had a lot of things where they got they got into the Pompey's penalty area a fair bit with 21 deep completed crosses and passes and Pompey only having 11 which I think plays into the fact that they just I don't know there was just not a lot of penetration into the penalty area which was frustrating and that frustration spilled over into the Oxford game but in a lot in a worse way really Forest Green also didn't seem to commit that many men into the box when they got forward, did they? So there wasn't they sort of got that far, then there wasn't that many options. Um, I remember Connor Wickham had a little chance where he sort of tried to dink it. There was one ball across the box that they could have potentially tapped in near the end, where I had my sort of heads in my hands, thinking that might go in as well. But just generally speaking, I don't really think that they they committed that many men into the box. They're obviously missing a, a striker. Matty Stevens is out, isn't he, as well? And you could tell they just looked completely a little bit a little bit blunt from that. Yeah, I think they kind of lined up almost from the Kenny Jacket school of football of we'll stay within one goal and then hopefully it will break to us in the last 10 minutes. We won't make wholesale changes. We won't, you know, make things go to head in a handbasket and just commit loads of men forward and, and open ourselves up. They stayed within one goal just about and then created that, you know, one chance that uh, it was I think it was the drilled shot across goal where that um if that if that gets knocked in or it gets a touch on it and goes in, then it's a very different story. So yeah, it kind of reminded me of the old old days where we were frustrated at losing one nil under Kenny Jacket, where we just stayed in the game and then just hoped a set piece would go away in the final 10 minutes. Uh, but obviously a point at this point in the season would be would have been big for them down towards the bottom of the table but uh yeah they yeah you do wonder if in some ways one nil defeat wasn't a bad result 
for them. And I don't mean that in a patronising way. I mean, in terms of, you know, goal difference can be crucial at the bottom end of the table and they've conceded a lot of goals recently. So I think, yeah, a 1-0 defeat where they could have nicked a one or draw at the end. I didn't see a huge amount of negativity from their fans at the end of the game, either, you know, at the ground or on social media. So, yeah, there's not really much to say about this game apart from that, is there really? Played, you know, fairly all right. It's sort of one of those sort of one nil wins away from home. There's a lot of criticism online about it. I thought he played okay. I thought our shape was better with the fullbacks played in it. Jay Mingy played well. And that's about it, really. We got the goal where it was needed. Could have had more, but is what it is. Three points. Let's take those and run away back down to the South Coast. All right, let's move on to the game against Oxford. Not quite as a sunny, sunny approach there for me when I talk about this game, because... We, as expected, against the three in the middle, were completely overrun with our main four, the big four, you could say, midfielders out injured. We looked pretty terrible in the centre midfield. Oxford knew exactly what to do by putting those three in the middle. It was very similar, I thought, Freddie, to watching the Charlton game with how they managed to dominate the middle of the midfield. It just stopped us getting our foot on the ball and creating anything, really. And the sort of the lack of link-up play between the, the defence, the midfield and the attack is so apparent. And it just leads to a sort of trying to go long, getting it wide and then just taking any opportunity we can to shoot. Yeah, it was a generally poor, poor performance, especially in the first half. Only having three shots in the first half, creating very little. Again, a lot of the problems stemmed from the centre midfield. I thought Mingi had less of a good game in this game. He still, whenever he got on the ball, liked to drive play, create that space, which is obviously very good. But to be honest, whenever he had his back to goal, when he received the ball, he seemed always to rush a pass which was quite a big issue. I don't think Tony Cliff had had as good of a game either. He wasn't as steady. Um, put a few tackles in, but the really, movement that's, off the ball that's was... Pompey News now, man of the match, Ryan Tunnicliffe. Yes. Yeah, referring to there. God knows how. Um, the movement off the ball in the midfield was pretty poor. That was, the main, that was the main reason why they were resorting to go long. I think we've said about movement off the ball being terrible for about how many years since we, st- since we started properly doing this, I suppose. But yeah, it was... Incredibly disappointing. Um, both wingers being on their wrong feet with two up front where we get most of our chances from crosses is quite frustrating because it was fairly easy to defend against when they got out wide. Both Hackett and Curtis simply wanted to go onto their strong foot, either to put the cross in or to dribble around them, have a shot from 20 yards, and it's a low, a low expected goals chance, and it's a low quality of chance. The strikers are starved, and then the one chance that Oxford got pretty much a long a long ball through to Gatlin O'Donker, chested it down to Carl Joseph, lovely finish on the half volley, 1-0. And you could argue that, oh, how, how likely is it to score so many times? And, oh, it's Oxford, they always score bangers against Pompey, if you remember the last time when we lost 3-2 against them at the Kassam Stadium. Pompey didn't do enough in the first place. That was the main issue. They didn't, they didn't have, have authority in this game and they didn't do enough to basically get ahead of the fact that Oxford can have one chance outside the penalty area, score, and then sit in a low block and time waste for the rest of the game, which is they pretty much did. And then they stifled pump in the midfield. It was there aren't many positives to take from this game, even even if even though it was a draw in the end, to be brutally honest. I don't know if I agree with you, Fred, there that Oxford created one chance and then sort of sat back. I thought for the first sort of well, up until the red card really, they created 
a number of decent chances. They had a, was that a drilled shot just wide in the first half. There was one at the early stage of the second half as well, close range, just went over the, the, only bar. One I, the only other one I remember is Cameron Brannigan when he went for on goal for the one all. Carl Joseph also Carl Joseph also had a shot from the right hand side that just yeah. went wide of the left hand post. Yeah. I think that I think your select like maybe your brain is protecting you a bit there, Fred, from the the memories of the Oxford attacks. I'd, I'd say they, I think they deserve a bit more credit than saying they only really created that one chance. I mean, much, hmm. look at the expected goals; didn't create that much. We know XG is a load of fiction anyway, so it doesn't really mean anything, Fred. So, and wow. also, don't give away your spoilers for the game later on. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, sorry to jump in, Fred. Um, I think that the, the most concerning thing of this was how good value Oxford were for their lead until they went down to 10 men. And as long as Oxford had, a, had 11 men, Pompey weren't really in the game. And then things obviously change a lot when... Uh, when the red card takes place, it's a pretty stupid second yellow card from Bowden. But the the way the game was sort of moving towards a conclusion, as you say, Hugh, Pompey were just getting pretty pretty dominated in centre midfield, which is understandable to an extent when you've got, what is it, four central midfielders unavailable. But at the same time, it wasn't like a marginal overrunning. It really was pretty dominant from Oxford United for most of that game and I mean yeah we won't jump too far ahead I guess so let's, let's stick with the first half for now and and stick with the goal Oxford scored but it's very very preventable if you watch that goal back Fred I don't know if you've watched it back since you saw it live but if you watch that goal back just as the ball comes in it's a ball from the halfway line or just from inside his own half on the right hand touchline that shouldn't result in a goal within, what, four seconds, two touches later. There's no way. And Oxford just manufactured that two-on-one with Clark Robertson, so he can't really commit to either man, kind of gets caught in the middle between the two. It goes to the far man who plays it back to the near man. And yeah, fair enough, it's a decent finish. It is a very good finish, but it's a finish that he shouldn't have had the opportunity to do so well if that makes sense it's just avoidable it could have been broken down at two faces of play he could have pressed the play he could have pressed the player who put in the long ball in the first place and if Clark Robertson didn't get in between the two he might be able to cut out but I, I don't think I don't think the blame is on Robertson for getting in between the two because he can't commit either way because then he leaves someone in sort of six to eight yards of space if he can he gets a bit screwed over by the fact that I mean, potentially you could argue that Raggett's positioning is a bit too far to the right, bearing in mind that both Oxford four players have drifted towards the ball on the right on their right-hand side. So maybe Raggett is he's dragged too far towards Swanson. There's an argument for that. But I don't think we can really put that much blame on Robertson because he's trying to do the job of two centre-backs in that position. And if he commits to, to one of them and makes the wrong decision... He it firstly looks awful, and then he'll get absolute pelters for it. So he's kind of got to, he's got to play the middle ground there a bit, and at least force Oxford to execute, which they did do. But um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame him necessarily for this. I saw someone blame Griffiths as well, which I think is exceptionally harsh. I don't think uh, that's a bit mental, isn't it? I don't think the old Baz is saving that one. If I'm honest, even last season, I think it's a bloody good finish. But um, yeah, as we said. Uh, the fault lies with the build-up, IMO. 
the only thing I'd say about Griffiths is his kicking is sometimes just quite flaky. So he's he sort of like, he, he can pull off a nice kick and a nice pass out from the back. I mean, he's no Simon Eastwood. He just seems to bang it up the other end and just play keeper to keeper, which is a massive improvement when he was at Pompey and he used to kick it from hand and he used to go out for a throw-in. The same for own goal kicks and blame the wind, stick his finger up in the air, even though he's got gloves on and try and guess the wind direction to adjust his uh, his kicking. I was wondering how many minutes it would take for you to start laying into Simon Eastwood, your favourite League One goalkeeper. Uh, I don't know how many minutes we've been recording for, but that's pretty much as long as I imagined it would be about four minutes into the Oxford review. But yeah, the Griffiths distribution, I thought, was quite poor in this game overall. Uh, I'm very much not on the bandwagon of just absolutely slating the bloke, which seems to be unfortunately a little bit popular on some social media at the moment. I think he's getting a bit of flack for a lot of things that, I mean, as we said last week, in the Charlton game, situations that his defence threw him under a bit of a bus with. But his distribution in this game was fairly poor, particularly towards the end, chasing the second goal when we were one all, and they were putting a lot of pressure on. There were a couple of times where there was the opportunity to really just keep that pressure on and he just kicked it out of play. And that obviously firstly gives the ball back to the other team and also completely breaks any momentum and deflates the crowd. So, yeah, I'd agree with you that distribution wasn't fantastic in this one. Uh, As if my admiration for Guy Whittingham couldn't get any higher, he also piled it on uh, Simon Eastwood for for leaving at that time. So, big up Guy Whittingham on the commentary. Much appreciated there. I'm going to say about about when, obviously, should we go talk about the second yellow? Because I think that's quite important to the game. I think credit has to go to Rico a little bit there as well for winning that little bit against Bowden, who'd be one of those sort of breakup midfielders, isn't he? He sort of gets in and he really stopped them them turning. So I like the way that Rico picks the ball up, he dribbles it past a couple of players there and ends up being brought down in a challenge that you think a centre midfielder could make if he wasn't already on a yellow, the game-changing moment. And I think that is what ultimately got us a point. Yeah, it's a brainless tackle, isn't it, when you're on a yellow? But as you say, rather than just slating the tackle... Rico did really well. He's sort of essentially a one on three at that point and a bit of quick feet takes it around two of them and forces Bowden into yeah a, a pretty stupid challenge. But as you say, definitely fair play to Rico for that. Uh, it was a nice little one, two, three touch to, to create a bit of space to drive into. And I don't know if Bowden just forgot he was on a yellow card or what, but they can have no real but, arguments yeah. with it. Although I think Robinson up had a little, a little cry about the first yellow, didn't he, from memory? But... I don't think you can really argue for me with either of them. But as you say, it was the game-changing moment. I'm not entirely convinced we'd have got a point without them being down to 10 men. Personally, I think the way that the style and the dynamic of the game changed so much at that point compared to what had been before. Um, yeah, I think they they potentially would have seen it out otherwise. So we're fairly fortunate that a little bit of, uh, a little bit of skill from Rico draws the foul there. Yeah, Rico played much better, I thought, when he was moved a bit centrally away from the right-wing spot. Has nice close control and reasonable dribbling ability, so he was able to get past Bowden there. And I agree with Andy from watching the game. If Pompey didn't go, if Pompey didn't have the man advantage, they probably wouldn't have got anything else out of that game. Completely spun the game on its head. Um, in terms of the expected goals, split from before and after the red card. Quite interesting. Essentially, the total XG, and I'm going to save a little bit for the game later, obviously. 1.81 expected goals in total. 0.2 was in the first half when we were dreadful. 0.71 was before 
the red card in the second half and then the 0.9 was afterwards. So it pretty much seems that in that shorter time span, Pompey basically just doubled roughly their quality of chances straight after that red card. And it was telling just by watching it. So that's half of Pompey's XG for the entire match was in the final 20, 19, 20 minutes, basically. Yeah, yeah, Fred? That makes sense, doesn't it, watching the game? Because it was just completely different. They've sort of, you know, spurred on. Let's talk about Bishop's goal a little bit because... One of our mates in our group chat thinks it's a definite handball. Do you think it's a handball, first of all, Andy Mitchell? I think it comes off his shoulder. Mate, yeah, it 100% comes off his shoulder. Like, I don't know what he's on, uh, the, the mate in the group chat. He's mate, either doesn't understand the handball rule or is watching the wrong highlights from the wrong year. What's it's, funny was he, he was stood next to me watching that guy. Yeah, he's. I, I don't know what's wrong with him for, for many reasons. But in this instance, again... It's not a handball. It's off his shoulder. And yeah, fair play to the ref or the linesman for not giving what would be a fairly easy thing to sort of cave into when you see it's anywhere near the arm. It's quite quite easy to err on the side of caution and just give the give the handball. But um, yeah, no, it's off his shoulder. No doubt. Yeah, mate, or Rob, or whoever you are, person who won't be named for that out into the ether. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's good from Colby Bishop, isn't it? And you know what we want to see there: Owen Dale, ball in the box, Colby Bishop, poachers finish, like we saw earlier in the season, a little bit more, and we get the goal. Because what that shows to me as well is that it's the lack of creativity for the strikers up front. And we talked about whether you put who you partner with who in the in the last game, but ultimately the strikers aren't going to score good chances. And this is a very simple analogy, though. But unless they get the service up front, and that's one of the better balls that are put into the box for Colby Bishop. There weren't that many in this game for anywhere, but only you know watching it live. But for me, good ball in the box in space, Colby Bishop creates something really from nothing to knock it round, then knock it in. Yeah, lovely finish. Um, I looked at the, cross, the crossing accuracy in this game, and it's thirty nine point two nine. And I thought that was quite high just from watching it. But it seems like no, not a lot really happened on the end of those crosses from watching the game. So that's probably that probably you know gives context to the statistics there, I suppose. But no, it was a lovely finish from Colby Bishop on the half volley, and that goal is my pick. I don't know which one of you wants to go first for guessing. It's, what, it's what is you first this week. Is. I went first last time, I believe. All right, here we go. So, ball comes up off his shoulder. Not really anyone in the way on the turn. I'm going to go with 0.41. Interesting. So, Fred, you already said that 0.9 of our XG came in the last 19 minutes. Uh, I think you might be pretty close, you. I don't want to just go one above or one below because that's a complete dick move, but I do think you're about right. Um, so this is from the moment it leaves his foot after the shoulder up in the air. This is just the volley, right? So, I mean, you're, I just paused it on the replay and Hugh, you'd be loving it. Eastwood has got like, his legs just sticking up in the air like someone shot him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he, shocking is shocking mate, mate. All on the replay it's hilarious bearing in mind that Bishop's on the volley from the right hand side of the goal and Eastwood is both feet up in the air on the complete other end of the goal line it's actually quite a nice little still 
Um, can, we just, can we just pause guess the XG to say that Oxford fans a season or two ago told me that he's going to the championship because he's, he was that well thought of? Uh, not off this performance, he ain't. Um, anyway, so you said 0.41. Oh, dear. You might have to cut out some of the silence on the edit. I'm going, I think, slightly higher. I think 0.46. Andy Sorry, Mitchell, Toby, Andy you. Mitchell, more spot on. Take a bow. Ah, tick a boo. Take a bow with, with the 0.46, which is what oh. Bishop's expected goal was with that. I actually, I, I actually might not take the silences out of that, Andy, if you're deliberating purely because it was also your brain power working up to the exact figure. I mean, mm. just for record on the video, you can see that my hands weren't on the keyboard at that point, just in case anyone seems to think deep, that. Deep, deep contemplation. That's two, two, uh, two this season. I've got absolutely dead I know, on. I know. And you hate this metric and somehow you really get it right every time. I really do. Um, but How are you doing now 4-3 to Hugh, I believe. Um, indeed. So indeed. I'm back within one. So under the, jacket, under the Kenny Jacket mentality, I'm well and truly in the game. Let's hope you don't fluff it in the playoffs if that happens. If we have a guess the XG playoff situation where we're tied at the end and Freddie starts throwing out random random uh, points in the game and random shots. Multiple, Imagine a guess the XG end of season quiz. Well, we're not allowed Imagine. to refer back to any highlights. You're just like, right, Shrewsbury at home, Colby Bishop, 83rd minute, bunts, go. I mean, nah, that, that sounds like my idea of hell. But uh, yeah, if- yeah. That's when you're doing homework before, Andy. You just have Excel open. You're just trying to memorise chances over and over <laughs> again with your massive university lecturer brain just processing all these numbers going through it. Yeah, my massive long COVID uh, brain fog brain that can't remember anything. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get on to the next bit. We put a question out to you guys and we said, Pompey have struggled in centre midfield, especially versus Charlton and Oxford. Is this down to injuries or should Cowley change the shape of the team to win back the centre of midfield? Thanks to everyone who messaged in. We really appreciate it. Makes the show. And let's crack right into what you said. So, Joff messages in and says, 4-3-3 would be ideal when all fit. For Saturday, we may have to improvise with whatever system we play. We might see Freeman in midfield. Andy Mitchell, I know you've mentioned to me before that Freeman in midfield would be a good idea. So, do you want to discuss why that is? I am fairly certain I've never had that conversation with you in my life. Uh, no, it's an interesting shout from Joff. He uh, he knows his stuff. I don't entirely get the rationale for it myself. Um, I think if you start playing Freeman in midfield against, uh, sorry, ahead of players whose primary trade is playing in centre midfield, I think that potentially, uh, yeah, I don't know. Saying that, we haven't got three fit centre midfielders, have we? Or three non-suspended centre midfielders. It would be a strange time to bring in three at the back when you haven't got three fit central midfielders, wouldn't it? That'd be an odd one. I, I can see the rationale because four four two has looked a little bit ropey the last couple of games. But sorry, Andy, do you mean do you mean three in midfield rather than three at the back? Because it's a. Uh, I did mean there. three in midfield. Yeah, apologies. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much for picking up on that. I'm glad one person was listening. Fred, I saw you drifting off. No, he's there in his Baywatch poster. We don't know what's happening. He's just moved it. It's the one he used to have behind him in his old place. He's now placed it behind the screen now, so you can just stare up at it as soon as we're talking. Oh, who doesn't love a bit of David Hasselhoff, eh, Freddie? We can see him through the uh, through the screen here. <laughs> um, anyway, 
back to Joff, who does actually look a little bit like David Hasselhoff. Big fan, Joff. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised if we see three in midfield being switched to when we don't have three centre midfielders. Freeman, I've only ever really seen play well on the right in defence. Uh, I think he was used as a makeshift centre-back for a bit and it didn't particularly suit him, understandably. And based off that, I wouldn't necessarily chuck him into centre midfield, but it's an interesting idea, Joff. My, my rule of thumb, don't play players directly out of position. I don't see it. I do appreciate we have no idea really what Portsmouth's injury situation is, simply because... Dan Cowley basically has lied in the media and then admitted it, really, to what his injury selection is because he doesn't want to give the advantage away to the opponent, which is frustrating to literally everybody. Assuming, let's say, randomly that Tony Cliff and Mingi are the only centre midfielders, uh, you go with that. I think any benefit of playing Kieran Freeman, what, as a DM, effectively, uh, with Tony Cliff and Mingi slightly forward, I think it takes away too much I know, I know it gives you more in the midfield, but you can stabilise the game a bit more. But then the striker on the end will get isolated, really, and Freeman doesn't add a lot of creativity um, if he goes into that midfield spot. Now, if Pack or Lowry are fit, that's I think that's a completely different conversation. I think then you can allow Ryan Tunnicliffe to sit a bit more, who could also drive forward a bit when he wants to and moves around a little bit more. And then you can have Mingi and then let's say the other centre midfielder is Lowry, for example, you can have both of them in an advanced role and then probably Bishop up front because he suits the one up front slightly better, even though, again, when he played for Accrington, when he was at his best, he played alongside Dion Charles. So Bishop is used to playing up front with another strike partner. There's a lot of moving pieces here. And if you consider the opponents of Shrewsbury at front park, who often try and go a goal up and sit in a low block because we've seen it for seasons now and they like to dominate the midfield with an extra man it might even be worth sticking with 4-4 to you too even though it sounds stupid and even though they were bad against Oxford I don't know what you think you I wonder what your opinion is it's a difficult one isn't it because I think at this moment in time the system just quite clearly isn't working I think Whilst Mingy was able to create more against Forest Green, that's purely because he had that pace and talent against a side who really aren't as good as us. So he had that space and that ability just to be able to use that raw sort of ability to turn and create space and chances. But it still didn't link up with the the strikers up top. I'd be interested to hear what you think, Fred, about changing it to the a sort of a four-two-three-one. So basically adding an additional midfielder, but further up the pitch, allowing the centre midfielders to have someone in in the cam role to pass into, which then, rather than just, you know, adding another DM, which I think is pointless if you haven't got a centre midfielder fit, maybe that helps link the play up and allows us to get balls into the box better for Colby. That seems a little bit better because I think when when Cowley moved Hackett into the centre attack of the field, he looked fairly reasonable. Um, it didn't matter that it was on his wrong foot on that side. He was able to play through his strengths, which is close to control and looking at shorter passing. And playing at Cam also gives him the license to run into the channel and go a bit forward because he's got a reasonable finish on him as well for a depth player. Yeah, that, that seems potentially, if, you, if you're worried about losing the field, you go for the 4-2-3-1. Imagine... <laughs> How the world changes. Do you remember when we were playing 4-2-3-1 and everybody wanted us to go 4-4-2? Now we're, now we're at the exact opposite. We're just fickle. Is that what it is? 
we just oh, anyway. anyway. I, I think I think we are being industrious, Freddie. I think it's a situation where we haven't got a lot of our starting centre mids, so we're sort of weaker in that position. So I feel like this is more not necessarily what to do in the long term forever, but in the short term, if you've got to start turning Cliff and Mingy in the middle again at Fratton Park, I think you look at what happens when the opponents lost the centre midfielder in the three. We were evenly matched. And then suddenly the game turned on its head. Yes, I know there was one less player and it gave us more space, etc. But I do wonder then if you've got that three across the front, it gives a situation as well where the wingers aren't always going to try and cut inside and shoot as well, which is another point I wanted to bring on to you, Fred. We didn't talk about it too much in the game against Oxford, but what, what were your feelings on the fact that Karoma and Curtis are both obviously left-sided midfielders who want to shoot their right foot? It's very frustrating, actually. <laughs> because I think that was probably one of Curtis's weakest games in a Pompey shirt. I really didn't see him create an awful lot in this game. Wasted a lot of chances. Didn't want to cross the ball. Um, I think the crossing breakdown for that game was quite interesting. If I do bring it up, I have it here. Curtis had three crosses in this game. None of them connected. And then Karoma only had one cross the entire game and that didn't connect either. So that's a lack of distribution on that side. And it's obvious that both of them like to drive, play and attack a fullback and go on their strong foot. Fine. But A, if it becomes predictable and B, like we said, it doesn't really fit if you're against an opposition in a low block, as an example, because they load the penalty area behind them. So at that point, you've got to cut inside and then maybe look for the switch pass, perhaps. And it's obvious that you're always looking to cross on the right side, but then cut in on the left. And that's also easier to defend a little bit unless you're switching to play rather quickly. And yeah, it said a lot that Curtis that she walked off the pitch by the away end rather than in front of the front end. I think that says a fair bit. But no, that's frustrating there. And I was even calling in that game for Denver Humes coming at left wing purely because he's on his right foot. He's on his stronger foot, excuse me. And he's able to put the ball in a box. It might be a little bit different considering we're playing one up front. It might be different. Maybe it will suit Curtis or Karoma in that situation if you're playing the 4 2 3 1. But if you're playing the 4 4 2, you're, play, you're playing for the strengths of overloading the penalty area and having attackers in. So you need decent crossing. And I don't think that section works. I know Karoma had a few, a, a couple of decent goals to start off with from cutting inside and he created a fair bit of chances. But then he's also had games like against Oxford, like against Charlton, where he hasn't really done that much. Yeah. And it was interesting as well in the Oxford game because 51% of our play went down the left-hand side. So if you're in a situation then when he gets up to the attacking player on the side of the wing, whose then job is to put the ball into the box and they don't, that's half of your attack basically muted for the whole game on one side. I think it's interesting because Curtis is actually better when he actually mixes it up and he's not frustrated to shoot. So when he starts doing that thing where against Forest Green, for instance, he linked up a bit better with Ogilvy and he had a few times he he actually drove to the byline and put a ball in the box to look dangerous or won corners and things like that. I think I can't remember if that was actually how he got the corner to for Owen Dale to put the ball in the box, but it, it, he looks a lot stronger and he looks like a more dynamic player when he does that. Did not in this game, unfortunately. And I think that's where potentially part of the unbalance is coming. Tim Foot messaged in and he said, Pompey were not as good as early season form suggested. 
nor as bad as it seems now. We've lost a lot of key players and it shows. I think we're still on track for the top six and there's no need to panic. Fred, do you think a lot of fans are panicking purely because of how well we started and people started getting their hopes up a little bit towards maybe a, a top two, two, a top two, a top two push? And now, you know, we're sitting in the playoffs. We've still got a game in hand and, you know, we're sitting comfortably in fifth. I don't think they're panicking. I think they're just looking at the individual performances and they're not really impressed. And I don't blame them for that, really, because there's, no, there's nothing really to take out of the Oxford game other than the fact that they had lots of guile when Oxford went down to 10 men to push and get that goal. Fine. But before that, the team was created, they created little and they were pretty all over the place and very disjointed. And you could argue that the fact that they didn't put two or three past Forest Green and really they didn't, they created some chances after the ones in the first 20 minutes, say. But they weren't really convincing in that game either. I thought there was a slight overreaction for that game, but I think the problem is now fans are still fed up. And myself included, I was fed up after that Oxford game thinking, God, all the conversation is going to be after that game. The referee was poor. Oh, we have injuries. Oh, God, we have this, that and the other as any reason why Pompey are playing really well. And we haven't got the result we wanted. What, when the fact of the matter is, the better sides in this division currently on paper are winning those games. Ipswich, Plymouth, Sheffield Wednesday are currently leading as we're recording, I believe. And it leaves fans frustrated that really all this good work and all that hard work may just come down to two playoff games again. When, when, as you know, in supporting other sports, um, ice hockey especially, it basically leaves a lot of the a lot of the regular season work completely redundant, and it goes down to how you match up against one or two sides in three games. And if it and if it doesn't go right, that's it, cut done, and then it's then they follow it on. I generally don't blame fans for being frustrated from those from these two games, really, considering external factors and considering that the reasons behind those excuses they've heard them before and we're sick of hearing it <laughs> and Palo Bobby fans are sick of hearing it because it's the record sixth season in League One the third tier of English football and it could go to seventh next year some say that's unreasonable but I don't think it's unreasonable at all I think I think there's a lot of valid valid frustrations and the fact that they can play well for four or five games on the trot and then lose two key players and then immediately they're done by the looks of things. And I know the injuries compounded on each other, but we've heard it before. We've heard it before, haven't we? And I think a lot of fans are sick of it, to be fair. Good teams find a way to win. Yeah. Pompey Canberra messaged in and says, our midfield was our biggest strength prior to injuries we've sustained. Once they're all fit, I'm confident our performances will pick up. We've been so unlucky to have gone from an embarrassment of riches in that department to absolute bare bones. Fred, just make devil's advocate. If you if you swapped out, say, our centre midfield and put Pack and Lowry in the centre there, is it a different game against Oxford? Because I feel like when you when you sort of match up against someone with a class of Cameron Brannigan in the centre there, who has the ability to sort of control the game, to not just, to, you know, two players next to him to break it up, but if you get someone like Marlon Pack there, 
you think we've got the ability then to be a completely different team and, and the game swings that it's had? To a certain extent, I think the ability to switch the play would be for a bit better. Even though really packed for a few games before his suspension injury, he wasn't brilliant either. I think a lot of people gloss over that fact, to be honest. He looks as if he hasn't played well and his metrics were down before that suspension. I think it would have made things easier for Pompey to deal with a midfield and then play to their strengths, which is on paper, the front four with the strikers and the two wingers who are aggressive. If you play them to that out of there, keep it away from the middle of the pitch and just switch it very quickly, which is what Lowry and Pat can do with overlapping fullbacks. And I don't think it, I think it would have changed the game to a certain extent. But they still would have lost the ball a fair number of times because Cameron Brannigan's a great centre midfielder at this level. And we know that. And he has two next to him. So yeah, it would have changed some things. I think it would have made it easier. I think Pompey's performance would have probably been better, but I don't think I don't I don't think it was a golden ticket or anything. How does Carlos Mestil and says, don't think inverted wingers and two up top are helping players available. Early season, all about high tempo, attacking space, and carrying the ball. Now it's very reserved, trying to force it through the middle of the pitch, bypassing the centre midfield, so teams play compact and press fullbacks to stop crosses. Do you think we're going a, a little bit long in bypassing the middle, Freddie, at this moment in time? I think we were playing passes to play it out, little triangles, intricate, getting the ball forward, but in sort of positions that are you're getting more likely to win the ball higher up the pitch as well, allowing your fullbacks to get forward, pressing. The pressing stats are down, aren't they? They are down uh, in a lot of games. They're up against Oxford. Um, and to be fair to Pompey, they were below eight before the red card as well. So the second half, it was six and a half passes allowed per defensive action from the 46th to the 60th minute and four from the 61st to the 75th minute with the sending off happening in the 71st minute and then 5.7 afterwards. So they were pressing Oxford a fair bit in that second half. But you've seen it, but the press is inconsistent. You've seen it in other games where just they haven't and it's quite obvious. And then you've seen it in other games where there's some nice little triangles in the wide areas. And then a player, say it's a fullback, looks up. The players who are in the triangle have run off, but there's no movement anymore. So really, they have to play it long to either the striker or play it back to the goalkeeper who plays it long to the striker or it's a long ball to the winger because the movement's not very good. When Popper had their best this season, the, move, the movement off the ball was exceptional uh, at, at every area of the pitch. And that allowed to allow Pompey to play play it really quickly, attack with purpose and attack with pace, and score goals. I know it's hard to carry that on all the way through the season, especially at League One level with fitness. But the better better teams than Pompey will do that. So that's my standard. If, if you if you look at the if you want Pompey to actually get out of this decision, I want this team to be good enough to get out of it automatically without a coin flip of a play of playoff games. That's, how it is you think the standards are unfair then I don't know what to tell you we'll be stuck in this division for ages otherwise and yeah I think that's a, that, that's a major thing the moving off the ball it's so key and I think having inverted wingers on both sides sometimes harms that when they get through to the byline but then they have to shift it onto their strong foot because obviously they don't want to cross with their weaker one I wouldn't if in that position um but then you shift onto that side. It gives it gives the opposition defenders a chance to catch up. If there's no movement off the ball from the midfielders running towards him to give him an option, then he's either isolated out there or he has to cut inside and dribble and have a shot. That's the only other thing they can do. So, yeah, um, I've, I've forgotten where that 
question was actually lining up really to be honest but he was talking about how, how it's more reserved basically now it's how, just more how reserved. We are. It, it is it's just more reserved largely largely just the movement off the ball since the movement off the ball's bad that's that's effectively forcing more direct passes because the because the play is not as intricate as they're not finding the space and so on and and a lot of that might be down to the fact that some of the better players aren't playing so they're scared of making a mistake maybe so the play's slower that might also be it as well there's a lot of reasons why for that to be the case yeah I think we're also sort of relying on the fullbacks then aren't we to get forward and provide the width and if we're then being they're being pressed up the pitch and Pompey are doing a lot of passing on the back line left back to fullback and stuff like that because they're trying to retain possession because they're losing it further up the pitch in midfield it means the defence has dropped back quite deep isn't it and then they're struggling to get the ball forward in four positions enough to get the ball into the box you saw a little bit when and it was interesting going to talk about it quickly going to uh, Zach Swanson because you look at when when they had to go down to 10 men when he was in a bit of space there getting forward he put some more right balls into the box I thought he actually looked quite good in that in those positions but it's getting those full backs into positions to cross and if they're not getting in those positions just due to the nature of the game the wingers have got to assert that role and do that role with two strikers up front so I think that's for me where the inverted winger problem is. Yeah, and, sometimes... and statistically, they, they didn't do it in this game. They yeah. didn't do it in Oxford by just looking at the stats. Uh, I can't remember how many Dale had. Let me have a look quickly since I've got that. Well, Owen Dale had two. He had two main crosses. Got one of them right. Got one of them wrong. The one he got right was when he was right in the penalty area. To be fair, uh, but yeah, because because the one that was for Bishop's goal got, got deflected, so technically it wasn't a completed cross, even though it was a reasonable one. But yeah, it, 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 there are some gaps in Pompey's play here, and it shows. Um, and they're coming up against the Shrewsbury side on Saturday, which are always hard to beat every single time. And that's not a cliche. They're genuinely a reasonable side. I don't think I've ever said that they were bad. Um, but they're just playing. They're, they're playing. They're playing a physical way. They'll play in the low block simply because I've watched them play in the low block at, at Fratton Park several times. <laughs> Several times they'll pat they'll pat the midfield, try and control the midfield, and it will be very hard if the uh, passing the movement off the ball isn't very good. Alf John messaged in and says, "Losing your first, second, third, and fourth choice midfielders already is concerning. We're now stuck with playing a lad who's barely played in the football league and a player who we desperately tried to get rid of in the summer. I reckon once most of our midfielders are back in, we'll be fine." Why didn't Tynecliffe go to Australia? I thought that was happening as well. He had the haircut sorted. He was ready to go. But um well, good thing he didn't. Happen. Otherwise, he'd have one centre midfielder. Yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not actually annoyed about that. I'm just making a joke. But let's hope one of those midfielders gets back soon. Let's hope they're back for Saturday. If they are back, I've got a little bit more confidence. But at the same time, I still want to see a little bit more. And not this is not Danny Cowley, but this needs to be a tactical coaching issue that you don't put the ball in. You do, you do put the ball in the box. Then you know you do let, knock it out for an overlapping fullback. You do this sort of thing rather than cutting inside and shooting. I do wonder, Freddie, whether it's a little bit of an issue with the the sort of the wingers that there. There's a little bit of a fight for competition, isn't there, on who starts on that side? And sometimes I was watching Ronan Curtis play and just watching him think. Well, Josh Chrome has got a couple of goals recently. Maybe I need to step up and get on the score sheet in order to cement my place in the team. Do you reckon that's a factor? Potentially. Um, but I think really, aside from the goals, both players have... 
in the last three games have played pretty similar, in my opinion. I thought yeah, Curtis had a reasonable game against Forest Green, but the Oxford game it was one of his worst. I think the, the strange thing is, but since both those players seem very similar, and I think overall performances, I'd probably give it to Coroma, to be honest, but not by much. What do you think of Josh Coroma and how he's played since he's been on loan? What have you actually thought of him? Because I'm, I'm not sure of my opinion on him yet, to be honest. It's quite funny. I was watching his highlights package, which is always the the glitziest stuff, isn't it? But, you know, before he joined, um, chatted to a few Huddersfield fans, and it was very similar to what we gave feedback on on Ronan Curtis. So I do see quite a lot of similarities between the two players. And when it's not working, I find that quite frustrating. He's got a great shot and he scored some good goals. He does sometimes scare defenders how he takes them on. If he gets into an isolated one-on-one situation throughout the pitch as well, I think he looks good. But I'm not convinced about his cycling of the ball and the way he sort of brings other players into play. I'm not sure he always chooses the right pass. That was quite evident against Charlton when he could have played that nice through ball to Dane Scarlett. I'm a little bit unsure about his decision-making, but he's not played that much football again, has he? You know, he's been a very bit-part player for Huddersfield before. Sometimes those players need a bit of time to get up to speed. But yeah, I've not been overly convinced on him. I know Andy's a lot higher, higher on him than I am. Um, let's be on to the next one. Blue Blood Messaging, he says, use a 4-3-3, Mingy, Pack and Lowry in the middle. Sometimes put Dane on the left and rotate Bishop and Pigs up top. All right, Fred, let, let's go into a situation where we actually have 4-3-3 because we have the players available for the next game, okay? So Pack and Lowry are both back. They're fit. Didn't risk him against Oxford. Do you go 4-3-3 in that situation? If you do, now we just spoke about Josh Caroma, Ronan Curtis struggling on the left. Do you play Dane Scarlett wide as a wide forward? I don't see playing Dane Scarlett wide. Um, he's a striker. And I'm going to go back to my principle of don't play a player out of position. I've From looking at him, from looking at some of his past games, I've never seen Dane Scarlett play out wide. I don't know why you play a number nine out wide when you can't play him up front. I think an inside forward on the left wing would probably be a bit better in a 4-3-3. I think those problems where it's less relying on crossing might be ideal for whoever's playing there. And I think if I had to pick a free man midfield, considering Thompson is out, I think I would probably go Lowry Mingy Pack, wouldn't you? There's the three midfielders and it fits in this Shrewsbury game where they are going to try and over a midfield like Charlton and uh, Oxford did. That's what Blue Love, Love was saying. He's saying... Mm. Ming- I think, that, I think if available, because obviously Danny Cowley is even a bit of lying, so we have no idea who is free and who isn't. That's what I'd go for, really. And um, up front, the striker up front of their own, I'll go Bishop with Dale on the right and probably now Caroma on the left considering Curtis's performance on Tuesday. And then the back four the same. I think that's the way to go about it, really. So would you do that, though? Here's the question. Would you switch it up and play 4-3-3 and play to our centre midfield strength, but drop a striker? Or do you think it's working generally? We're just lacking personnel. I might be tempted just for the Shrewsbury game and then see where we go afterwards. It might be a case of changing it just for one game to settle the players back in again. Because obviously Larry and Pat won't be sharp, so it'd be nicer to have a supporting midfielder with them. And then when you're confident in them again, switching it back to the four four two with Pack and Larry in the middle. 
because that was that's where we got most of our goals from and that's where we looked very good and that's where most of the good analytics of this season came from. So I don't see how we would throw the toys out of the pan completely. I think just given the initial circumstances, I think you change it for this game, like this upcoming game. I think it could be an option, personally, when you're playing teams that play so narrow. It's actually something we've struggled against through the years, isn't it? Playing teams like Charlton, who play either a diamond or, or, or a three-man midfield and things like that. So this isn't a new problem to us, is it, the football club? It's something we've historically struggled with as well, I think. So, yeah, game to game. But I do think it's something we should consider consider doing. I do what I like, Messi, and says, either play Scarlett as, Scarlett as a lone forward or Piggott and Bishop up top. Yes, the midfield has been problematic, but the second half last night highlighted the fact that Bishop isn't a hold-up player and he does his best work when we get balls to him into the box. And that he isn't compatible with Scarlett's method of play. Pack and Tunnicliffe in centre midfield will get us driving forward to better effect and reduce our recent reliance on long passes. It seems like a man who's voted for Tunnicliffe for man of the match. I, I, I don't see a lot of value that Ryan Turnercliffe provides in the team. Uh, personally, I think he's a player that against lesser opposition, for instance, can do a job. He's one of those, he's a good squad player to have. He, he can do a job in the middle, but I don't want to drop him for, for anyone else in that sense, in that situation. I'm not sure Pack and Turnercliffe is going to be the dynamic duo in the centre of midfield. No, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think the pairing's too slow, to be honest. Um, I understand where he's coming from with Bishop not being a holder player and playing at front of his own. I do think I think that that might be a bit concerning. You might get isolated out there if there's not enough support from the midfield. But with a centre midfield free of Lowry, Mingley, Pack, there definitely will be. I have less worry about that. And Bishop will be playing at front of his own compared to how he usually plays in a pair, which is fairly interesting. Scarlet up front on his own. Maybe. I, I I didn't get the comment where he said that Scarlett and Bishop don't work together because I think they definitely do. That's where we got most of our goals from. So I don't see where that comes from specifically. I don't think Pickett has played well enough recently to warrant selection ahead of both of them. He has played up front on his own for Wimbledon in the past. I've seen him playing 4-2-3-1 and seen him lead the line. So he's got the skill set to do that. If you want to completely change the selection purely down to the opposition just for this game, you might want to pick it up front on his own. In a 4-3-3, you might want to, I suppose. I don't think he will do. And I think Bishop's played well enough to warrant the chance up front on his own as well. So there's a lot of intricacies in this next couple of games. This In this game, it's going to be very interesting. I've got a feeling he would start Bishop and then if he feels like he needs to stretch defences, he'd bring Dane Scarlett on. To add a bit more pace when when players start to tire. If you if you, if you sort of you know, try and work out who starts and, and and who comes on, I've got a feeling that it would be a bishop start with Dane Scarlett the the first option off the bench. If you played a four three three, that would be my that'd be my guess at it. I suppose Jack Mastin says, should Cowley be sanctioned by the club for consistently lying to us loyal fans who are fit, who's fit, and who's injured? Also, should the starting eleven be made public 48 hours in advance so all fans have a better idea of the products they are buying? <laughs> I mean, Jack, there's a reason why we don't put the lineup out there 48 hours in advance. It's the same reason why Danny Cowley lies about Lowry and Rafferty being back. It's so that Oxford's game plan, they can't plan necessarily for exactly what's happening. It is really annoying, though. 
It is, yeah. <laughs> it's really annoying, and it makes you think really in that whenever there's an article about about injuries, if you're not if you not even if you don't think the information's accurate, who's going to listen to it or look or look for it? So I don't think anybody really. Um, it might be interesting if teams put out their lineups 48 hours before the game. Very interesting. But what if there's an injury? Then you have to submit a new one? I don't know. If that was a season by... If that was every team in the league happens to do that, that'd be quite interesting. Mm. It might mm. even build some commentary leading up to the game, Fred. We could do like a 20-minute a lineup podcast where we discuss <laughs> and break down the lineup of choices before games. Do but people really want more of us? Are you sure? <laughs> probably not. If you're listening this far, hopefully so. But... Should it be sanctioned by the club? <laughs> no, no. I mean, he has always to- he has always told us, hasn't he, that he's, this is the one thing he won't be truthful with us about, and that is selection. And I've got a feeling that Cowley thought if they knew our lack of depth in there, they maybe will capitalise on it more. Well, it didn't make any difference, did it? I suppose in the long run, because they played pretty well and still dominated us in the middle. Beth has mentioned it and says lack of pace is really concerning for the whole match. Yes, Scarlett and Dale for ab- about an hour, but that's it. We don't hurt teams 90 minutes. We need to be ruthless and we're not. I've got to agree with Mephis on the idea of being ruthless because we just seem very timid and a lot of playing the ball around at the back without any real penetration. But again, that comes back to playing the system properly, doesn't it? And you've got to say that the players have been lined up to play that way properly and pass it forward and give options and make brave passes and not just sort of hopelessly giving the ball away a little bit because then out of ideas, is that fair to say? Potentially, yeah. We've talked about the reasons why Pompey haven't played really well recently and it has been timid. And Pompey have gone for a lot of games without playing well for 90 minutes. And if you look at the best sides that have gone out of League One, they look as if they're in complete control for pretty much most of the games they play, especially against sides that are nowhere near them. And it breathes into that anxiety of Pompey fans thinking, oh God, we're going to end up in the playoffs, play against a good side and lose again. And they're looking at the matchups and seeing if we'll actually beat these reasonable sides. Because we see, because remember Andy Kenny Jackie, we even, we even said, look, we're, we're getting the results, but look at the way they're playing. Look at the way the chances are coming from. Is the manager getting the most out of the players he has? There were all these questions, and some of them have been breeding into these last few games because the performances haven't been brilliant. Even though four points in the last two isn't horrendous, getting, getting a point against Oxford was okay given the circumstances, but it definitely doesn't breed confidence, does it? No, not at all. Ben messes in and says, the 4-3-3 has picked us apart a few times this year. Yep, just mentioned that, Ben, and completely agree. Reckon a pack Mingy Lowry 3 would work better than just a 2, but that probably means sacrificing a striker, unless we move to a back 3. All right, Freddie, let's do it. 3-5-2. No. <laughs> I don't think we've got players for it. I really don't. Um... Our wing backs haven't got enough width. When we're talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, you're, you're either going to have to play your, your wingers at wing back, which defensively I think is a terrible idea, or you play your out on that wing wingers and keep your out on wing backs and keep your wingers on the bench, and then what are you using them for? Or you end up playing a three four three where effectively you have a winger next to two strikers, and it and it gets a bit asymmetric and a bit weird. So I'm still not convinced by our formation, to be honest. We've invested quite a lot, haven't we, in these wingers? 
let's be honest, the options to play as wingers as such. And I've got a feeling because of that, we're probably going to stay with playing wingers. I'm probably investing strikers as well. So why yeah. not? Why not use two of them? I think it was pretty obvious in the get go when we got all the players together that Cali wanted to play four or two, and I wouldn't mind adjusting that for a few games. But that's that's what the side's going to. That's what the side's best suited for. That's what it's going to roll out with, and in the long term, really. But do you feel that in the short term it's fine to change the formation to maybe yeah, against specific against specific yeah. teams, especially given the the anomaly of this injury scenario and maybe in the middle of a game as well like he did against Oxford bringing Hackett on adding that extra bit of midfield that definitely helped you don't know he'd have to do the Paul Cook model of completely run out the 4-2-3-1 and then never change it ever and then change it for one game against Carlisle away from home you win 3-0 and then you start the 3-5-2 in the next game we were dreadful and then never touch it ever again we don't have to do that there's not, there's not that extreme but we just know what the formation is that best suits the players we have and you just pick it most of the time well I think we discussed that now I think we've I think we've done that thanks to everyone who messes in it's appreciated Fred is there anything on the news we should talk about before I roll us into the Shrewsbury preview uh, there's not really a lot um, Carl Robinson was very very upset about the handball but I don't know hopefully he's calmed himself down now and uh, did you hear that, that, that Pompey could get Two, a clause of £250,000 if Joe Morrell goes to the World Cup. It's a big if at the moment, isn't it? Or is it an England setup in which they just choose the players that have done well for them internationally over the time? It's when we wish Andy was here, isn't it? Rather than, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know why he's left, to be honest. Do you know why he had to leave at, at nine something in, in, in the evening? He's got shit. Man's, man's got shit to do. He's an important man, all right? Mm. He's not mm. like me and you, just sitting around next to the microphone, chatting away. We have nothing better to do in our lives. Andy's, Andy's got multiple layers to things going on, right? I know. He definitely has. He definitely has. But but hey, great clause if Pompey actually gets it. N- a nice little bit of a transfer fee. Bit of a strange clause. Um, I guess it might it may have been realistic at the time, I suppose. But hey, who, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? And then there was a lot... Um, there was a lot last week about the EFL blackout potentially being rescinded. If you want to read into that a little bit more, I recommend looking at Philip Buckingham's article in The Athletic. Very detailed. Goes into the potential pros and cons of it. The one thing I will say is the revenue split for the current deal, which it which expires, which basically shows how important it is for Pompey to get promoted and how much of an advantage it is, even if it's just one season. The TV deal revenue split in the football league, eighty percent of it goes to the championship, which is rushed, which means every championship clubs get roughly four million pounds each. Twelve percent to League One, so we get just below six hundred thousand each, and then eight percent to League Two, which is just under four hundred thousand pounds each. That's a gulf, and it pretty much explains why most sides who get relegated for the championship are pretty much contenders. Unless they're complete basket cases, and speaking of basket cases, Wigan, even though they've gone last season, they went out and spent an awful lot of money. They've now uh, paid their players late for the third time this season. So, uh, yeah, I'll, ju- I'll, I'll, I'll just leave that there for you for guys to think about. Yeah, what? Why do you think that is, then, Fred? <clears throat> they've overspent. I thought these guys came in with bags of money that was going to, you know, sort them out, and it was fine. They went out and spent loads of money and. 
paid Jack more what what more load of money as well to bring him in and whatever it was. Is, are they being they being scammed? They spent it all. <laughs> <laughs> they came in with bags of money and then spent it all because uh, football's really expensive if you want to have a good team. We'll have to keep an eye on them, won't we? Shrewsbury Town, Freddie. Just when you want a team to come to Fratton Park with a bit of openness and a game of fast pace and free-flowing football, Shrewsbury Town plonk themselves down and come to Fratton Park. We talked about the battle for the midfield, and I think this could be quite a difficult battle as well. Looking at the last game they played, in which they lost away to Plymouth 2-1, which is actually nothing to nothing to be ashamed of at all. They played a 3-5-2-1. Now, in the middle there, we've got Carl Winchester. Probably fans will be familiar with him. Obviously, Forrest Green, but then to Sunderland. Tom Bayliss in the middle as well. Probably the, one of the better centre midfielders. Alongside Leahy as well. That's a pretty dynamic three in the middle there. I will be very concerned if Pompey don't have some of those head midfielders back that we spoke about, how they're going to match up together against each other. Jordan Shipley on the left as well. Good player, can put balls into the box, causes problems for, for a lot of teams down there. Fred, let's just pause on that section there because those three are going to be quite difficult for Pompey to break down in the middle, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Not just because of the formation of playing free at the back, but also the fact that it's an incredibly balanced midfield. I really like it. Um, defensively responsible, as you'd expect through Shrewsbury, but also there's enough technical ability there with Bayliss and Leahy. Both of them, I think, have a range of passing. Both of them can also get stuck in, really. Both of them can dribble a little bit. And then Winchester was an excellent CDM for Sunderland that steady play last season. I really like it. and I'm really worried about it. Um, and then Jordan Shipley, I think Poppy were linked to him for a fair bit as a lone player. I believe, when he was at Coventry City. Um, dangerous on that side. Again, range of passing. I think the only benefit really is I'm not that fussed about their strikers. Are you? Looking at Sadian no. Street? No. And, th- and they had Daniel Udo from last season who scored 13 goals. But then this season, he's only played five, ga- five games, started four, and hasn't scored yet. Uh, I don't know where that's came from, whether that was just a blip last season or if... It's good to be replicated, but no, I think Shrewsbury will cause a, lot, cause a lot of problems in the midfield. A lot, a lot of problems, which I, well, I think for this game, it might be beneficial to go to a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3. If you look at their results, for instance, they, as I said already, they they lost 2-1 away at Plymouth. I think Plymouth came back in that game, didn't they? I can't remember. Um, they lost at home to Charlton 1-0, and then they beat Fleetwood away 1-0. And they beat MK at home 2-1. These are all very close games, are they not? Games of one goal here or there, sort of battling it out. This is not going to be a free open, um, free-flowing game. But as you said, they have got those players in the middle to cause a lot of problems. It just seems to me that they're struggling to finish off those chances up front. If you look at the stats as well, Fred, Shrewsbury have scored eight goals in open play, for instance, uh, which is the, the joint third least in, in League One. They've got six in open play. Uh, sorry, six, they've got six goals from set plays as well. So it's nearly balanced on the level of how many goals they've got from set plays and open play as well. I've got a feeling that if they're going to get a goal. It could be created from a set play, a corner or something like that. The centre-backs do like to get forward as well. I'm not that convinced about Flanagan playing left side of centre-back for them. Dunkley's massive in the middle there. 
Not sure about Pennington. Not a player that I know too much about. Do you? I don't, unfortunately. No. Um, I really do like Sage Junkley in the middle of a three, though. Yeah, same. Very, very solid aerial centre half, proper League One centre half. Almost will... like short, almost like Sean Raggett in that sense. Isn't yeah, it? effectively, and it might make it difficult if Pompey playing one striker and he's isolated because Sean Shedokley could easily man mark him in a game fairly easily. That is a bit of a worry. What are we going to do then, Fred? We we're saying we maybe need to sort the midfield out. Maybe you have to go to a four-two-three-one, play one striker up top. It's not going to be the easiest game to play in a tour, I don't think. But let's get to the score prediction part. Have you got anything else to say on this? Apart from, oh, I had one more thing to say, which is they press the least in the league. Only Morecambe don't press as much as Shrewsbury. Now, Shrewsbury at home as well tend to press a bit more. So away from home, I can see them sitting deep, controlling that midfield and waiting for those chances in this game. Anything else to add to this, Fred, before I roll into the score predictions? I think the only other thing to say is that an athletic that was interesting was their expected goals against, uh, all of their expected goals against us, including set pieces and penalties, um, was 18.57 and their conceded was 17. So they're not, so they're defensively reliable in that sense compared to the rest of the league. They are roughly mid table for expected goals against and they're pretty much on the money. So, so they're not. They're not uh, purely down to statistics alone. They're not a strong defence, but they're certainly not weak either, I would say. They're not a juggernaut of cultural defence, then, are we saying? No, but but they're really good. They're really good at it still, I think. Yeah. And I think it's his system, how he plays, isn't it? Probably fans will be pining to get back to the way that we played under Steve Cottrell. All right, Fred, let's get to it. Score prediction time. What is your score prediction for the game on Saturday against Shrewsbury? Oh, a certain part of me wants to just pick a nil-nil draw, but that's boring, uh, so I won't. I'm going to go one-nil Pompey, and I think Tom Larry's going to come back and score. No idea if he's fit because nobody does. So we're going to go with that. We're going to. I'm going to go for one-nil Pompey, um, even though a certain part of me wants to predict nil-nil and be cynical, but I won't. It's difficult, isn't it? I really can't predict how this is going to go. I want us to, to to sort of to build on the fact we came back and managed to get a point and the fact that we got a win and we need to get some momentum going forward. My heart says 2-1 Pompey win, but my head says nil nil. Um We're both having the same issue, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go positive and say a 2-1 Pompey win. Why not? Let's finish the podcast with a bit of positivity. There's a reason why we don't win any money from betting because it will be a nil-nil, won't it? But we, we're going to ignore that for the time being, aren't we? Exactly. We're going to ignore that because I'm going to go with a goal from Colby Bishop and another goal from Connor Ogilvy to pick up where he left off Solid. at the start of the season. Solid. As Shrewsbury sit in, allowing Connor Ogilvy to get forward more to become that overlapping far winger that we saw in the start of the of the season where he comes in late at the back post taps home two on Pompey win alright oh yeah Andy mentioned three nail Pompey by the way he says we're cynical bastards and he says three nail Pompey brilliant he assured we were going to say nil nil but we swerved him exactly <laughs> Brady it's been good having your podcast oh always a pleasure thank you very much for listening guys as always and until next time 
Player Pompey. You have been listening to the PO Forecast for Pompey News Now. Available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow PO Forecast and Pompey News Now on Twitter for more information. And there is the full-time whistle!